Welcome to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. On today's show, I'll be speaking with Loretta Ross, who is an activist and professor at Smith College, about calling in the calling out culture. I first read about Professor Ross in a New York Times article from November 19, 2020, entitled, What If Instead of Calling People Out, We Called Them In? by Jessica Bennett. She states in the article, I think you can understand how calling out is toxic. It really does alienate people and makes them fearful of speaking up. The process of calling out in our culture today can be dehumanizing. And I found Professor Ross so inspiring because she speaks so honestly about how derisive calling out is and brings up a more productive and more humane approach. In an opinion article she wrote for the New York Times in August 17, 2019, Professor Ross wrote that callouts happen when people publicly shame each other online, at the office, in classrooms, or anywhere humans have beef with one another. But I believe that there are better ways of doing social justice work. She continues to describe how callouts are often louder and more vicious on the internet, amplified by the clicktivist culture that provides anonymity for awful behavior. And as an activist and through her experiences, she talks about a more effective way to build social justice movements, and she indicates that they should happen in person and in real life. I can't help but feel that this is great advice from a woman who has spent her whole life actually doing and promoting change for the better as an activist instead of clicking or shaming someone on social media. Let's be real. Who hasn't made a mistake? And I think the word mistake should be plural. Mistakes. Do we ever stop learning? And who isn't ashamed of some of the things we said in our younger days when we were more, mm, more ignorant? When I was seven years old, awkward Asian girl that I was with few friends, I decided to dress up as a punk rocker during Halloween. And one of the girls in my class liked what I was wearing and decided to go up to the school auditorium stage with me to announce our costumes at the school-wide assembly. We thought it would be so funny to say that we were prostitutes. So I went in front of the school with this newfound attention that I had from this friend, and I announced on the mic that we were prostitutes. Silence followed, and after that, I knew there was something wrong and felt ashamed. And to be absolutely honest with you, I had no idea what a prostitute was. We just knew the word. My friend laughed when I said it, but I had no idea what that word meant. I realize that this may be a silly example, but I'm telling it to exemplify the fact that there are always many opportunities in which to learn. 
Sometimes I wonder if we are still alive because we, in fact, don't know everything, meaning we are here to learn. Sometimes I don't even feel confident talking. Maybe being a dumbass is something we are supposed to work out in life. It takes a stronger person to not remain a dumbass to overcome and learn. But how can we learn in a guillotine-like environment? A version of call-out culture is important to reveal the injustices that exist and the need for greater reform. And while it's important to recognize mistakes, it's important to show them what could be the right way, explain and discuss, so that the mistakes can be avoided in the future. If you are going to call someone out for the mistake, then it seems only right that you are also there for the process of change. Kind of like King Arthur's Table, Britain's legendary king, where he and his knights sat at a round table so that there was no head and everyone who sat at the table had equal status, meaning no one is better nor worse than the other. But now with the power of social media, when your mistake happens to occur on or posted on social media, it can feel grave and irreparable. It feels more like public shaming, such that there is a possibility that one may never talk again. I can't help but feel that if one deliberately hurts and feels better at the expense of another, that that's also not right. Let's be honest. We all have to learn. Sometimes, I feel like I have to learn all the time. I find Professor Ross really inspiring, because not only is she actually a badass, but she talks about responding and not reacting. She talks about changing the call-out culture, and she states that calling in is simply a call-out done with love. And she is a woman who had the courage to become an activist, an actual doer for justice in person. Not many of us can say that. Professor Ross used her own story of sexual assault to facilitate a conversation with incarcerated rapists, teaching them black feminist theory. And later in her life, when working as a program and research director for the Center for Democratic Renewal, which monitored hate groups, she taught anti-racism to women whose families were members of the Ku Klux Klan. She invited people whom society could naturally dislike to the table to talk. And now on to the interview. Professor Ross joined the women's movement in 1974 by working at the first rape crisis center in the country and learned about women's human rights, reproductive justice, and white supremacy. She has researched and fought hate groups such as the KKK in the 1990s and founded a national center for teaching people about their human rights and co-founded Sister Song, which is a network of individuals and organizations to improve institutional policies and systems that impact the reproductive lives of marginalized communities. She is a professor at Smith College and currently teaches about the call-out culture and white supremacy. She has published multiple books about reproductive justice and has a new book coming out about calling in the calling out culture. And this year, like me, she started her new podcast called Dread Feminist. Before we get to this interview, I should mention that there were some technical difficulties with the recording of this interview. 
and it may not be to our normal audio standard. However, my sound producer, Will Mitchell, did an amazing job salvaging the interview, and I'm so very grateful. Welcome to Lost or Found, Professor Loretta Ross. I just wanted to say I'm really honored to be able to speak with you today. Well, thanks for having me on your show. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Well, my name is Loretta Ross. I live in Atlanta, Georgia. I'm a professor at Smith College, and um, I'm originally from San Antonio, Texas. Wonderful. And Professor Ross, how would you describe the call-out culture? The call-out culture is when you choose to publicly humiliate people for something they said that you think is wrong or something they've done that you think is wrong. Instead of privately pulling them aside and saying, you know, that didn't land on me too well. Do you mind if we talk about it? Instead, you put them on full public blast with your loudest voice sometimes. And over social media, it means that you're easily not only calling attention to what you think somebody has done wrong, but you're inviting others to jump on and pile on and continue to criticize them. And then it just gets exaggerated and magnified till a person feel like they're getting bullied by people. So that's the call-out culture. And of course, calling in is choosing to make the same critique of them because it's possible that, that they do need feedback. But choosing to do it in such a private way so you're not drawing public attention to what you perceive as a mistake, but you're still offering a corrective behavior. And don't you feel like it's something that's existed for a long time, but with social media, it's taken like a whole other level in the level of public shaming and the anonymity and the fact that things can go viral? Of course, calling out has always existed as long as human beings had beefs with each other. I mean, Alexander Hamilton was called out and killed in a duel. So obviously, it's been around a while. And we did have witch hunts and we cost up puritanical because it doesn't fit a given belief. But there's a velocity to social media that's just different because it's not just one person or even one community calling you out, but all of a sudden your name can become a hashtag around the world. There was a woman who posted something pretty racist on social media about AIDS in Africa, and she was glad she didn't have it. And before she could get off her plane in Africa, she had become a worldwide hashtag. But that's what social media can do. It can punish so fast that Joe McCartney, Dorothy would have been envious. He was the guy that used to punish and fire people for supposedly being communists in the 1950s. And it would all start with the whisper campaign, like the call-out culture, when it had real-life consequences because people got fired for being suspected of being communist. Other people died, like the Rosenbergs, for out of suspicion, uh, suspicion that they were communists. And so, yeah, but social media is quite violent sometimes. And it doesn't really seem like it's a good avenue for change. You know, it's kind of like going back to the times when we would like throw stones at people or even like the scarlet letter, you know, and it's kind of ironic how with the call out culture, we do unto others the thing that we don't want to happen to our own selves, but we do it to others. 
hiding too, you know? Well, humanity has a great tolerance for hypocrisy. <laughs> and we're best we're best at being performatively biased <laughs> sometimes. But it is sad that we don't stop and think before we blow up somebody's life. Usually they're even strangers and it's like is that the way you want to walk through the world, going around randomly blowing up people's lives because you think you're doing something good, but in fact you're doing a lot of harm? And the problem with the call-out culture is that it makes people so nervous of being the next target or victim that they stop even contributing their thoughts to a group or a classroom or a work site because they don't want to be the next victim. And so then only the loudest, most bullying voices are heard. And that impoverishes the whole shared pool of meaning, of knowledge, because a lot of people just bow out and say, well, I'm not going to team myself up for that as long as that bully's around. It's true. And I think like, you know, we're like feeding fear instead of like really opening the door for real change. Yes, that's what call-out culture does. It feeds fear instead of opening up the door for change. Thank you. That's a good saying. I I borrow it from my book. (laughs) Awesome. You know, I was reading in October 2019, former President Obama on call-out culture indicated that that's not activism. He stated during an interview about youth activism at the Obama um, Foundation Summit this idea of purity and you're never compromised and you're always politically woke and all that stuff, you should get over that quickly. And he continued to state that the world is messy. There are ambiguities. People who do really good stuff have flaws. People who you are fighting may love their kids and share certain things with you. That we're like, there's opportunity for change, that there's opportunity to learn, but maybe the actual truth is, we may not be as different from each other as we would think we are, but that we're, you know, that there's common grounds, you know, inviting that change. You're absolutely right. And so is President Obama. I have dealt with some pretty noxious people in my life. I mean, people who were in the Ku Klux Klan or the Aryan Nations, uh, convicted rapists who had murdered women. And I've had ways to, I've had to find ways to talk to all of them. And what I found is that, first of all, humans are humans. And even bad people who, who do horrific things are capable of doing good as well. And good people are capable of doing bad things. And so I've actually found it rather inconvenient to have to give up hating people. Once I got to know them, because I, I actually liked hating people. I liked calling people out. And then I, but I found that I eventually didn't like the way I was walking through the world. It was making me feel worse about myself. After I had successfully called someone out, I wasn't feeling better. I was feeling worse. And so I had to think of other strategies. But when you let go of hate, and you actually talk to people underneath their words, underneath their buster, you find that they have the same emotions you have, that they have the same 
things that they worry about many times that you have, and that humanizes them for you, and then you can't hate them anymore. I can still be afraid of them, but I don't hate them. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more scary, at least in my experience, after you get you know, searched and sometimes even strip searched to visit, go inside of a prison to visit someone who's, who's incarcerated. And you're there to meet with these men who are convicted rapists, and they're all tall and buff and, you know, shoulders like they, you know, are gold gems champions. And it turns out that outside they raped women, but inside the prison they became the rapists of men. And the reason they were so buff is because that's how you protect yourself in the violent atmosphere of a prison. You become the baddest, strongest guy around. And so the first time I walked into this room with this room full of looking like athletes, as you know, Olympic athletes, I was like, oh my God, what have I gotten myself in? And isn't it kind of ironic, like the biggest, baddest, strongest looking guy or woman could be absolutely devoid of the most important thing, like love. Well, the, I'm not sure if that's true because they were the ones that reached out to us at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And so they started a men's group called Prisoners Against Rape, which was the first male-led anti-violence program in the country. The One of them that I got to know fairly well, William Fuller, was 18 when he got sentenced to life in prison for murdering and raping a black woman who was 17. And by the time I made him, met him, he was 35. In the process, he had taught himself to read. He had become quite, like I said, a rapist. I imagine when he got to prison, he was a victim because that's what he said. And then he decided he didn't want to be a victim anymore. So he, that's one of the reasons he buffed up. And then he met all these other buffed up men. And they started not only taking care of themselves because they had entered as children, but they started reading. And somehow William Fuller got hold of some black feminist reading at the time. And that's what made him call or write us at the D.C. Rape Crisis Center and ask for help. How beautiful, you know, that we all can change if we choose. Well, we had to make rules now because we, I was immediately skeptical. So they couldn't ever ask us to bring anything. No, no tennis shoes, no cigarettes, no money. Mm -hmm. We weren't going to be used to ameliorate their incarceration because obviously People who are incarcerated are incredibly lonely, and they they make a habit. They they they're one of their survival strategies is using people on the outside to make their lives a little bit easier on the inside. And so we had that as a ironclad rule that we couldn't do anything, we wouldn't do anything, and be used that way. We wouldn't write any letters to the parole board testifying how great they were. And so it was purely an educational program that they they appreciated. And I remember, I still have in my library, as a matter of fact, multiple copies of the same book. Because I'd have to like take six books with me of the same book, The Destruction of Black Civilization. And then I'd have to bring the same six books back. 
So eventually I got rid of them off two or three of the multiple copies, but people keep asking me when they look around, why do you have so many copies of the same book? Do you forget you already got it? <laughs> no, it's got a long story attached to it. But it seemed like you really helped to promote understanding, though. You know, like, even though the men were in that situation, I think sometimes when you learn things like that, it really helps to promote differences in the way someone acts or sees things. Well, I know it had an impact on me, and I don't doubt it had an impact on them. But the one I'm most aware of is how it changed me. First of all, even in my 20s, I learned that prisons and the whole prison industrial complex was not a solution to ending violence. Because all they did was move the side of the violence from the streets to the jail. Yeah, just moving it. Yeah, it didn't end it at all. And so I really began to distrust what we now call carceral feminism as an answer to ending violence against women. I had also never even conceptualized men as rape victims. Because, of course, I was a survivor myself, which is what led me to the Rape Crisis Center. But I'd only seen women as victims, women and children as victims. I had not seen men, grown men, as victims of rape. I just didn't have it in my mind. And so telling my story, hearing their stories changed that for me. So I learned a whole lot about rape being a matter of power and control and never really about the sex. And uh, But back to the calling in theme, I learned that I could have the most unlikely conversations with the even more unlikely people <laughs> and emerge from it knowing a lot more than I went in. You know, I, I, thought if, I thought it was really interesting what you said about hate. The ironic thing about hating is that when you like hate, it also, even though you're, you, it seems like directed at someone or something, that it also hurts us or it hurt you. Oh, hatred is such a caustic emotion inside. It eats me up from the inside. I walk through life prickly, looking for a fight to happen, and uh, I don't feel good about myself. I don't have a really good threat detection alarm so that anytime when, I, when, I'm, when I'm caught up in that hate, I, I just think that anybody that speaks mean to me is ready to violate me all over again, and I must pounce on them first before they get me kind of thing. That's one of the reasons I had to give up hate, because it was ruining my joy and making me very cynical about life. Totally. And I think it really doesn't fix anything. It's just like when there's a hatred or hateful situation, spewing more hate on there ain't going to fix it. You know, it's just not the light that should be shed on an awful situation like that. And I think the answer maybe may lie in a maybe more complicated and more meaningful answer that hopefully we're on the path to. But... <laughs> Well, I'm sure it does, but let's be clear. I'm no angel. I'm no saint. I do hate people, but I try to save my hatred for mean people, hypocrites, people who are really abusing their power against each other, somebody else. I mean, I still do call outs, but I call it punching up. I have no problem with the proper use of call outs because the human rights movement, of which I'm a part, we end human rights abuses with the power of shaming. So that's a good weapon for us 
when it's appropriately directed. And Professor Ross, how do we make sure that it's appropriately directed? You know, like, because there's so much misdirection right now to promote real lasting change for the good of society makes total sense. But how do we make sure that it's always appropriately directed? Well, first of all, all calling in starts with the self-assessment. You have to ask yourself why you're choosing to do what you're doing. Are you in a safe enough and healed enough and emotionally healthy space before you call somebody in or out? And so be clear about your motives before you decide to do it. Also, the target. I don't agree with anybody punching down, picking on people who are weaker than them. That's bullying. And they can't, you know, when you're, when you pick on someone who's vulnerable, they can't hold you accountable at all. So I don't disagree totally with the punching down. But most calling out is punching sideways. It's neither punching up or down. But taking pot shots at people who have relatively the same power status that you have, even if there's differences of identity and gender identity and ability and stuff like that. I mean, because your identity in and of itself doesn't mean that you're automatically a victim or somebody else with another identity is automatically an oppressor. It really does mean uh, what your relationship to power is uh, that, that I use as a filter, for example. And so it's really important that you use calling out as sparingly as possible and then really make sure of the accuracy of your aim because it's like irresponsibly shooting off a gun. I, I'm one of eight kids, so I had five brothers and two sisters. And I grew up playing the dozens, you know, calling each other names and, and fighting with each other verbally because mom, mom and dad did not play physical fights. But we certainly could snap at each other and make fun of each other and did not even recognize the irony of saying, yo, mama, we were kids and you should leave those childish things behind. And what's fortunate about my family is that we're wildly different politically and religiously and professionally. We do a lot of different things. But mom and dad taught us the importance of family love. And so we fight still. We're in our 60s and 70s and we fight still. But I know who's going to bury me because that's the bonds mom and dad gave us. And I think like, you know, even in one's family, I mean, a lot of tolerance may be needed, you know, but hopefully the overall goal is the same, but sometimes it requires a lot of tolerance. Well, yeah. And patience. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Particularly in this highly polarized political atmosphere. Matter of fact, the bravest thing I saw in the 2020 elections that deposed the wannabe King Donald Trump was the young white people, ages 18 to 29. They were the only white age group that didn't vote for Donald Trump. And I call it brave because, of course, every other young age group of young people voted for Biden too, so that's not 
But what makes it brave is that when you're 18 years old and you vote against the people on whom you're still financially dependent, who may you may you may be counting on to send you to college or continue to pay that tuition, or you had to return home to because of COVID and the economic collapse. That means that you're stepping out there and breaking with the people that you may be emotionally and financially and socially dependent on. And that makes it quite a different kind of bravery because in the black community, I vote against Donald Trump. I'm called a hero. In the white community, you're voted against, you vote against Donald Trump. You may be called a traitor. But I think even at a young age, to be able to make that discernment between right and wrong, that's a really hard thing to do when you grow up in a certain environment and they tell you what is and then to break out of it, to actually see. Well, we all have to emerge from the, uh, the families that we grow up in. And hopefully they gave us the right values so that we could try to do better. My mother was born in 1922, and she was raised by her grandmother, who was born in 1893. And so when I talk about Victorian values in my house, (laughs) it's literal. I mean, I can't tell you the number of undergarments my mother thought was proper before you could step out into the street, (laughs) most of which young people don't even own anymore. And so... Emerging from that required learning who I was and what I stood for and not forgetting mom's values, but not embracing them for myself and particularly making sure I didn't pass them to my son. The beautiful balance that we choose. Exactly. You know, one of the stories that I loved for 2020 uh, was a story of the New York bird watcher. And like, ironically, you know, the bird watcher and the white woman had the same last name, which I thought was so ironic. And, um, you know, he had been out in Central Park, you know, he's an avid bird watcher, um, you know, I guess watching out for the birds. And then this woman came in where she, her dog was unleashed, right? And, you know, she, I guess he had asked her to leash her dog, to which she responded that, you know, she was going to call 911 and it was recorded. The video went viral. She was going to say that, you know, this African-American man was threatening her life and, you know, when she called 911. But his response was so humane and profound. I guess like her dog was taken away from her and she had lost her job. And this was his response, which I found so profound. He stated, I'm not excusing the racism, but I don't know if her life needed to be torn apart. And I thought it was such a beautiful response. Well, the power of forgiveness is the power to reclaim and own your dignity for yourself. And not other people who want to leave dirty fingerprints on your soul get the last word. Oh, love that. Yeah. And it's something that we've all had to grapple with because we are hurt by others. But the longer we nurse that grudge and nurture that hurt, hurt and hate, we, we really need to ask ourselves how well holding that grudge is working for us. How well is holding that hurt close to your heart? working for you? Isn't it distorting you a bit? Isn't it still making that person who harmed you live in your soul? And how do you disgorge them? You start disgorging them by forgiving them. And I read the most beautiful statement 
of forgiveness from a guy named Chris Singleton. His mother was one of the nine people killed in Charleston, South Carolina, in the church shooting. And he says something kind of like, people tend to see forgiveness as weakness. But in fact, it takes a lot of strength and courage to forgive someone who's done a horrible thing to you. And I choose to forgive this person, even though I want them to be accountable, because I don't want to walk around with my mother's murder in my heart for the rest of my life. How profound. Wow. And it was such a statement. And he said, I really don't want to walk around with a grudge for the rest of my life against this person I don't even know who didn't know me. I want to learn how to walk in the spirit of my mother. Love that. Because I really feel like, you know, pain like that can really eat away at you too, like from the insides out. But the easy answer sometimes, it's like when you hurt that badly is to feel that pain, but to actually transform it so that you can live better and maybe do good things despite such a horrible thing happening in your life? Well, I've had to manage that, uh, but I actually don't have the wisdom of Chris Singleton. I had to actually go get therapy because <laughs> I was self-medicating me, self-medicating and self-destructive, trying to manage my impacted and untold trauma. And so I actually had to go get help. But really, you can't, actually see each other as whole human beings if you can only see people through the lens of your trauma. And I didn't want to constantly walk around like a wounded rape victim all my life, not to mention what it was doing and compromising my love for my child who was born of incest. Mm -hmm. Every child deserves unconditional love from their mom and they shouldn't experience what my son experienced because I, I loved him, but I hated his circumstances. We were able to talk about it once he was an adult. And I told him about his father, you know, being a molester or pedophile, actually. It was a cousin, older cousin of mine mm-hmm. who molested me. And he was married at the time, which was even more gross. But, you know, he was a serial pedophile. But what was really interesting about that whole scenario, as horrible as it sounds, is that my son always regretted being an only child. And without my knowledge, he sought out his siblings. And his siblings were first the three kids that his father Melvin had while he molested me. He had also impregnated other young teenage girls. So he actually had a total of six siblings. And I didn't even know he had done it until at his funeral. And some of them came to his funeral. And I realized that my son had formed the family he needed of his half-brothers and sisters. And so I, I really realized that my son, who died at 47 from a heart attack, was, was a pay-it-forward kid. Circumstances of his birth to really craft the life he wanted and the family he wanted. And the healing that he wanted. Yeah, I was I was astonished. And I loved him even more. I mean, in the middle of my mourning for him, because he kept this from me so that he could have this family 
but he didn't want to hurt me with the knowledge. And be respectful towards you. Yeah. Now, he sometimes, now that I piece it all together, because I have a lot of frequent flyer miles. So he said, Mom, I need a ticket to go to Philadelphia to meet with some people or whatever. It turns out he was taking all these secret trips to his family. It's just fine. I love him even more. May I ask you, how did you garner up the courage to seek help then? Oh, because I had totally blown up my life. I was the director of the D.C. Rape Crisis Center. And so I was trying to do all this righteous social justice work while inside I was a mess. And so I started abusing drugs. I was, uh, you know, just fronting. I don't know if there's another word for pretending to be okay and helping all these other victims and all this other stuff. And inside you're a mess. I was you know, doing the stuff with Lord in the prison and all this stuff. And inside you're a mess. And, and it all came to a crashing halt one day. I crashed and burned and ended up messing up some money. Because when you're an executive director, you, you have chores of the finances. And it's a really long story. But I had been sterilized when I was 23 years old. And I won a, won a lawsuit against the, the uh, manufacturers of the Dow Con Shield. And so because it happened right when I was the director of the Rape Crisis Center, I gave the center $20,000 as part of the proceeds. But then I was abusing drugs. So then I tried to borrow back my gift from them. <laughs> but in my drug addled brain, I thought that when I gave it, I can borrow it back. You know? <laughs> really stupid. But uh, it didn't work out that well. And so I was forced to resign from the center. And that's when I realized that I needed to follow my own advice because I'd been telling so many people to go get therapy and hadn't gotten any myself. Well, good for you. I would imagine that must have been a very long process, too, to heal. Well, it was. I mean, it's still ongoing. You don't ever get rid of trauma. You just become better at managing it. But what really, really helped me, because I've been able to think about that time. It was a long time I couldn't tell people what I'd done because I was deeply ashamed. And I had to learn to inch it out one one safe person at a time. And now I tell it as, as a cautionary tale. But what really helped me was that there were women on the board of the Rape Crisis Center who demanded my resignation, but they didn't give up on me. They actually made me come to a meeting, a board meeting, to to hand in my resignation, and then they stayed there and talked to me about what I should do next in terms of, uh, and one of them, a Maserat, I'll never forget. She said, Loretta, if you don't learn anything else from this, that if you have bad news about yourself, run and tell it first so that you can control the narrative. Because if you think you can cover it up and you let somebody else tell it, they're never going to get it right and they're never, gonna, they're never going to protect your feelings or anything with your bad news. And a lot still a friend of mine today. And that was 1982 that she gave me that wonderful advice. I love that. And it's so humane, too. And it, it seems like it's it's along the lines of, in the New York Times article that you had been in, what C.T., Reverend C.T. Vivian had also told you. I think you had stated, 
he said to you, when you ask people to give up hate, you have to be there for them when they do. Like the people, the way people were there for you. Oh, I know. I remember precisely how I felt when Reverend Vivian came to the Oswald and told us that because I went, oh, shit, under my breath because you can't curse at a minister. <laughs> but, but I didn't quite agree with him. I felt very comfortable hating people in the Klan and the militia movement and the neo-Nazi movement because they hated me. And so I was very transactional about the hate. If you hate me, hurt me, I'm going to hate you back. Yeah, that's the easier answer to just go towards there. And so he was call, calling on all of us, but it really had an impact on me to rethink my motives for doing the work, to rethink whether, whether or not I could embrace nonviolence as a philosophy. Because at that time, I was not the turn the other cheek kind of girl. And what I knew about nonviolence felt kind of weak to me, felt kind of passive to me. I had no idea how much strength and courage it takes to look hate in the eye and not hate back, like Chris Singleton was talking about. That that plunged the depths of you that you didn't even know you had. And so he was right. That's really powerful because I think to look at hate in the eye, that's like the path of greater resistance, but the path that will have the greater impact. Absolutely. The beauty of the civil rights choice, movement's choice to use nonviolence was that it made the the violence of their opponents more apparent. That stark contrast is what won the hearts and minds of the bystanders. That's powerful. You know, I loved what you also said. Uh, Call-out culture has taken conversations that have once been learning opportunities and turned them into mud wrestling on message boards, YouTube, and Twitter. Yeah. We have... Conflicts everywhere in our life because we're not clones of any kind. We're supposed to have disagreements. And we live in a pluralistic society where our whole democracy depends on having constructive debates about policies and how we treat each other and who deserves what. I mean, this is what we're supposed to be doing. But when people get into these gladiatorial combat as if it's life or death and if you don't agree with me, then I, I'm going to kill you or at least not recognize your humanity. I mean, we've gotten to a really ugly place in America right now where we have one political party that is totally committed to not living under the rule of the other political party in a very insurrectionist kind of way, where they would rather overthrow a democracy than share one. I think, you know, we are, we're a democracy, but we're not really functioning, functioning like a democracy, you know, like maybe like we're actually supposed to work it out, you know, like all of this, this exists. And I think maybe we're supposed to look at it, at each other in the eye and work it out. But do you think the, the current political climate is definitely worsening things then? Well, I think that there's a political party that has chosen to be insurrectionist. 
because it's made of aging white men who are demographically doomed. <laughs> you know, in a few short years, they, white people will not be the majority of America anymore. And they're doing everything in their power to set up a miniature apartheid system in our country as a way of maintaining power. That's all it's about. They had no problems with democracy as long as they were the ones in power. But the increasing diversity of this country and the increasing power being seized and shared by others than other white men is driving them back crazy. Except that they're demographically doomed because the only way they can stay in power is to, first of all, either destroy democracy, which we're not going to let them do, or suddenly persuade all these educated white women to become 19 kids and counting and have a whole lot of babies. And I don't think that's going to happen either. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's a pluralistic country by definition. Yeah. But they're trying to change that. We are citizens of a country that's never existed, in the words of Vincent Harding, because it's actually never been a fully functioning democracy of full equality and inclusion. It's always has been privileged being property-owning white men, kind of like the Constitution was originally written to serve. So it's always been a fight for inclusion for the rest of us, whether Black people, uh, the first uh, Race-Based Exclusion Act was the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, trying to guarantee that America would always be a white country, or women getting the right to vote, or now the voting suppression that we're seeing right now. In Georgia, we're trying to elect uh, two senators in the, in our January runoff, and the Georgia Supreme Court has 180,000 voters who were illegally purged, and it was proven that they were illegally purged, but they will not re-add them to the rolls in time for our Senate runoff, because we have a white-controlled Supreme Court. Sometimes I wonder if, like, we're not really, like, remembering our past enough. Like, we're not learning from the injustices that have occurred that we are not remembering. Because I feel like if we remember, maybe the world could really be a better place or our country. Like, we are not remembering. And with the pandemic, sometimes I wonder if it's a time to remember. Well, there's a Uruguayan, uh, Uruguayan writer Eduardo Galeano, I said, history never says goodbye. History says, see you later. Like, then I'll be back. You you don't really, even if you don't remember me, I'll be back. <laughs> I love the way he said that. History doesn't say goodbye. It just says, see you later. Yeah. And I think in order to continue to grow, we need to remember and we need to see what's going on right now. Well, part of the problem in our society is how, in order to maintain a white supremacist construct and use power and race as a way to decide who has power and privilege and who doesn't, they have to constantly recreate a state of racial illiteracy among white people. And that's why I don't even get mad at white people for the most part who don't understand how the system works because it's designed to keep them illiterate. You mean ignorant then? Is racial illiteracy ignorant? Race, uh, racially illiterate. Well, I mean, not just that. I mean, but we also think it's good parenting to keep our children sexually illiterate. <laughs> we send them out of, 
out of the doors to college, and then they expect college teachers to make up for all the gaps that you didn't get with children <laughs> before they left home. <laughs> yeah. It ain't going to help. It needs to be known. <laughs> right, exactly. Uh, but we have studies that shows that by age five, white children are already biased. And by age five, black and brown children are already experiencing racism. So if black and brown children are already experiencing racism, why is it not the right age to start teaching anti-racism to white kids instead of keeping them racially illiterate and then sending them out there to wound the world? It's true. I think we all have the potential to make the world a better place. And it starts early. Mm -hmm. I think we need to redefine good parenting the same way we need to redefine Good neighborhoods, meaning the absence of black people. Yeah. And I think in order to define good parenting, I, we as parents have to look into ourselves and our own thoughts. And sometimes it's hard to recognize. Yeah. Those things we're afraid of dealing with are the same fears we're going to pass on to our children. Yeah. And if we're afraid of it, you know, why? What power does it have unless we give it power? That's what happens. I find that quite frequently. I love what you said about doom scrolling in, in the in the same article. You said, I think we actually sabotage our own happiness with this unrestrained anger. And I have to honestly ask, why are you making choices to make the world crueler than it needs to be and calling that being woke? That was very powerful. Well, because you do have choices in life, right? You're not a puppet. And, uh, you know, for the most part, you're not being controlled by a puppeteer. So if you choose to spend your time, free time, making yourself worse or making yourself more unhappy, back off. Let's go find some joy. Let me find the things that make me happy. And But also, there's a larger problem there. One of my mentors was Leonard Zeskin, and he was a very famous and important and very smart anti-fascist because he taught me everything I knew about fascism and hate groups and stuff like that because he was our research director at the uh, National Anti-Klan Network Center for Democratic Renewal where I work. And I used to come into work feeling so overburdened by, oh, the weight of all the civil rights martyrs, the people who had died. You know, we had to go to these towns and help people deal with hate groups that were still flourishing. We had one town in South Georgia we had to go to where the Klan was running the fire department and letting black homes burn down. And a child had been killed in a fire that was only two blocks from a firehouse. And so I was feeling the weight, the weight of this legacy of these civil rights people and, and the people who had died and the people who were still dying while we were doing the work. And finally, Leonard came to me one day. He said, Loretta, you need to lighten up. And I looked at him like, okay, what are you talking about? He said, Loretta, fighting Nazis should be fun. It's being a Nazi that sucks. Interesting. And he totally shifted my view. That I was doing the work wrong if I wasn't enjoying doing the work. Because I'm not a Nazi, I don't, you know. But he was so right. It's being someone in the hate world that's that should be having a miserable life. 
And so that was like a great burden had been lifted from my soul because the, the, then I started thinking about how we can be imperfect people working for a perfect cause. We didn't have mm-hmm. to become perfect people to do the work. We just had to recognize that the human rights cause is perfect. And, and, and that's all, that's the only perfection we need. It just helped me develop sustainability in the movement because I was no longer burning, my, burning myself out working 16 hour, 18 hour days because I didn't think I could get enough work done. I had really lost a lot of the joy of life. And then I didn't have a toggle switch to turn my consciousness on and off. So I was walking around criticizing everything. I can't watch this movie because of the way women are portrayed in it or black people are portrayed in it. I can't listen to that song because, you know, that singer did this, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it was just a constant sea of judgmentalism. (laughs) That's so interesting that you let joy drive your activism. Oh, yeah. And love. Love. May I ask you, Professor Ross? What can people do to call in, to better call in people? What can we do? Well, I think it always starts with first stopping and taking a deep breath before you give in to that impulse to call somebody out. Do that self-check. Am I in a healthy enough place? Do I want to invest any time in this person? Or do I just want to walk away? What will be... My opening sentence, I actually, in my book, I write samples of opening sentences that you can just memorize and use all the time. Like, What can we say? Well, the easiest one is, I beg your pardon, because that automatically makes makes a person rehearse for themselves what they said without you even passing any judgment or feedback on what they've said. And so that really works well when you're in person with the, with someone. Exactly. Because a lot of it's done in anonymity. And it's almost like cowardly. If you want to call out for something that you feel that needs to be addressed, if you're going to do it and you choose to do it, then do it and be there with that person to really promote change, I believe. Oh, yeah. Well, I had somebody call me out who had my home phone number, but they chose to do it on the Internet. I immediately lost respect for them. It's like, you got my phone number. You could have called. And, it, and then it was a lie on top of that. Mm-hmm. You really felt that I was doing this thing wrong. You have my home phone number. You could have picked it up and talked to me. The fact that you chose not to means that you're more dedicated to, to achieving fame through defaming somebody else. It's true. And don't you and like you say, make sure it's the truth. Exactly. Don't call out if it's a lie. Make sure it's the truth. Lie on me. A friend with my phone number. I guess I shouldn't call her a friend. A person <laughs> with my phone number lied on me over social media who had my phone number. And she had my phone number because I had included her in a book that I had written. So this was not a stranger. And it really hurt. To let that lie, you know, just lay there in in cyberspace because I didn't want to inflate it by countering it in cyberspace. And I kind of scraped that person out of my life, even though I wish there was some way that I could heal myself enough to ask her why she felt compelled to do that. But I have to honestly say, 
I can't make myself care about her enough to invest in her that way. Like I said, she chose to lie about me in a very public way. If she had a question, she could have called me. And I really believe, like you said before, like spiritually, if you spew that hate and, you know, like it hurts you too. Like you carry some of it unless you're really, really aware. But like hurting someone else doesn't do justice. Well, what she didn't realize is that when you seek fame through defamation, actually, the first thing people know about you is that you're calling somebody else out. They're going to say, oh, this person may be right, but my first introduction to him is so toxic. It's toxic. It can be totally toxic. And I really believe some people, you know, who you do that to, they may never recover or, you know, they may never change, you know, if we do it in this like shame ridden way. Absolutely. It's um, one of the leading causes of youth suicides is bullying over social media. So we should all be concerned about that. Yeah. And whoever wants to be accountable for someone else's death like that. I don't think I could live with myself, you know. <laughs> and exposing people with these gotcha moments. I mean, one of the most controversial things I believe is that we shouldn't do these gotcha moments for something people did when they were young, stupid teenagers, and then 30 or 40 years later trying to hold them accountable for it. Particularly if they're willing to own up to their mistakes and say, yes, I was stupid, I did it, and I'm better now. Let it go. Because who hasn't done stupid stuff when they were teenagers? Absolutely. I mean, I'm ashamed of my stupid moments. <laughs> well, you know, I, I try to forgive myself for my teenage mistakes because I make bitter, bigger and better mistakes now. <laughs> More thought out. <laughs> May I ask you, Professor Ross, what was it like to be friends with the cook? Ku Klux Klan member. Well, friends, I think is an overstatement. We were in conversation. I didn't have, (laughs) I did not seek friendships with ex-Klansmen and ex-Nazis. I I have my friends, thank you, (laughs) who usually don't end up wearing robes or swastikas. But it was scary at first because I was prepared for them to not see me as a human being, kind of like I didn't see them as quite human. It was challenging because even if they defected from the hate movement, and that's the only way I came in contact with them most times, in any conversational way. Now, I went to a lot of Klan rallies and stuff like that because they down south, they used to have them all the time, protesting this integration measure or protesting whatever. And so we had many opportunities to go to Klan rallies as a black person. Usually I'd carry big white photographer with me and pretend we were an interracial couple, but he was actually my celebrity. So you didn't have conversations with them at their rallies. So what I found is that most of them had absolutely miserable lives, that they had histories of child abuse or drug abuse by bad parenting. Uh, The hate groups tend to recruit extremely alienated young people. And there's a reason that they're alienated. They're not getting, they're not coming from a good, healthy, helpful 
home environment for the most part. Now, of course, there's some that, you know, multi-generational clan members that you see these kids in these baby clan robes and stuff like that. And so I was actually called in to intervene with a group of women in Appalachia to do an anti-racist training for them because their children were being raised in the hate movement and they wanted to learn stuff that they could dissuade their children from going into these hate groups. And so there's those where it's intergenerationally taught, but then there's those where the parents were quite, you know, balanced. I hate to use the word normal. And then the kid got, like Floyd Cochran, one of the guys that I dealt with in the, from the Aryan Nation, but he, he was a very small stature person. So he got extremely bullied at school by the bigger guys uh, and in an all-white town in upstate New York. Had no contact with any people of color as far as he knew, or any Jewish people as far as he knew. But because he was bullied, he started reading uh, Mein Kampf by Adolf Hitler. When he showed up at school with the swastika, people suddenly became afraid of him. And he did that at 14. And by the time I met Floyd, he was in his 30s. And he was regretting the path he'd taken. But that was one of my most intimate conversations about how a Nazi is created at 14. Because I just hadn't imagined that the masculinist patriarchy was contributing to this in that particular way. Almost the humanity of this, like you know, almost like an unjustifiable situation, you know, the humanity of it. And now the alt-right or the far-right is recruiting incels, you know, involuntary celibate, celibate men. They meet them on, online like 4chan or 8chan or in male gym, in gyms where they're buffing up, trying to you know, not be bullied and stuff. And then these are the people that they recruit for the Tiki Torch marches that we saw in Charlottesville a few years ago. They take advantage of alienated, young, angry white men. And, and of course, the most angriest and misogynist are the ones are the ones who become the mass school shooters. It's true. I think that's really beautiful to be able to, it seems like you're able to empathize with not their path, but like, you know, like their lack of love almost. You know? Who can't be sorry yeah. for a child that doesn't yeah. what they deserved because if that's a situation like you know if there is no love or if there's no good guidance maybe all of us could become like that too you know it's like you just never know absolutely therefore the grace of god goes i kind of thing oh professor ross thank you so much for being such a beacon of light and your activism in our society it was such an honor to talk with you today All right. Thanks for having me on your show. Bye-bye. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and tell your friends. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.